Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. Today I'm joined by economist, Bloomberg columnist, podcast host of the excellent Conversations with Tyler, founder of the daily economics blog, Marginal Revolution, author of a new book on talent, and a personal hero of mine, polymath, who has devoted his life to, in his own words, being an infovora, consumer and distributor of information in new and creative ways, the inimitable Tyler Cowan. Tyler, one of the themes in your work, especially when interviewing people, is the idea of regional thinking. How has your own upbringing shaped you to be a thinker who looks at others through the lens of regional thinking? Is there something in Hillsdale, New Jersey, that made you particularly attracted to regional thinking or geography as a frame? Well, I was born in New Jersey in Hudson County, and later on, as I was growing up, moved to the higher income Bergen County. So one thing you know if you grew up in northern New Jersey is every town has a quite distinct identity and often quite distinct ethnic groups that have populated it. And you think about people in terms of, well, you know, which town did they come from? Even two towns right next to each other could be really quite different. I think being from New Jersey has influenced my own thinking, arguably in innumerable ways. I mean, one thing is simply it gave me a good dose of impatience. It's also given me a lot of sympathy for the suburban side of life. So I've never quite been like an urban cosmopolitan elite. Coming from Hudson County, which was very much working class, uh, I think I also grew up with somewhat of a suspicion of elites. So those would just be some simple ways in which I am a regional thinker, but I'm sure that's true in plenty of ways I'm not even aware of. How has travel shaped your thinking? And do you think do you attribute more Delta to travel later on in life or to New Jersey and sort of the place of origin? How do you think of that dialectic? I'm not sure there are alternatives. So one great thing about being from New Jersey is almost anywhere you visit like seems really good. Now, I like New Jersey. It's a great place to grow up. It's also a great place to live. But there's some way in which sort of visually, culturally, it's always feeling under something else. So it's an easy place to export yourself from. So you're from New Jersey, say you go to Western Europe, and you're quite amazed. You're used to the only point of contrast being New York City. So at this point, I think I've been to over 100 countries but I'm always viewing them through the lens of a boy from New Jersey, which means a kind of automatic fascination. Uh, it's all exotic to me. And I started traveling uh, in my early 20s, basically. Never have stopped. If you were born in New York City or London or a big metropolis, do you think you'd be more or less complacent? The thing I worry about with people born in New York City is the city itself is so interesting they often don't feel compelled to go other places. And that's entirely understandable. Because on a given day, you, you can feel that you're in touch with the whole world in a way that you quite can't if you're in New Jersey. So I think you can slip into a kind of higher cosmopolitanism, higher complacency. You might even be more dynamic, but that's partly a curse. Like the, co the marginal cost of leaving ends up being too high. I live in Northern Virginia, and my access to airports, it's so easy, so quick. You know, you're somewhere in Manhattan, and you're trying to get to JFK. It's a kind of nightmare, and when do I leave, and how long do I have to take? And the notion that you'll just, like, fly to Nashville for two days. I don't know. It seems pointless in a way. But in fact, that's what you ought to be doing in New York City. If you want people to be less complacent or more ambitious, what do you think is the greatest lever that you could pull at the cultural level to get people at the margin to strive more? Well, it's going to depend on context, but my simple answer would be to build a peer group 
that is itself not very complacent. And that will help you. So if, if your peers are less complacent than you are, that will elevate you. If they're more complacent, it will drag you down. I think that's not quite universal advice, but as close to universal advice as we'll get on this topic. Do you think your life would have been better or worse had you grown up in the internet age? Uh, ben Kaznoka and I have discussed this a few times, and I feel quite privileged to have lived in both worlds, the pre-internet world and the internet world. So the internet world helped me succeed. The pre-internet world helped me learn things and just go out and about and see the world because I didn't have the internet. Uh, so I'm quite glad I didn't grow up with the internet. Um, but no one really in the Western world has that choice anymore. I suppose Amish or some groups do, but not the way I did. Do you think the internet has destroyed the concept of the suburban or will destroy that concept of the suburban? How does the increasing digitization of life refine the, the original categories? Maybe destroy is too strong a word. At the retail level, rural, suburban, and urban now blur into each other. And obviously you don't have to live, say, in Manhattan to have access to all the books you want to buy. Uh, the car is still a significant differentiator. So if you live in the suburbs, you're going to aspire to have a car. You're going to use it quite a bit. Rural life as well. Uh, depends on the city. Los Angeles is in that way still like a suburb. But if you're in Boston or Manhattan or a number of other places, younger people are, are strongly moving away from cars. And that becomes a more important differentiator. The, the more the internet is equalizing these other dimensions. So politics and being anti-car and being sort of green and maybe woke become more important. One thing that you talk a lot about in your work is weirdness. You recently asked uh, one of your guests on Conversations with Tyler why they don't interview more weird people. How do you define weirdness? I asked that question of David Rubenstein, uh, the private equity guy, and he has his own podcast, and every person on it was someone like Walter Isaacson, who are obviously super successful, very smart, impressive people. But they're, you know, Aspen level mainstream or beyond. So I, I don't think I have a good definition of weirdness, but I would say I know it when I don't see it. Is that how I would put it? <laughs> so uh, I, I just interviewed Lydia Davis today, the author. And I don't know if weird is the right word. But even though she is famous, has won a MacArthur, has won a Booker Prize, she does not come across as a mainstream thinker. And indeed, she is not. She's some version of eccentric. Do you think society would be better if more people were weird or are we at equilibrium? Well, obviously, weird can either be very good or very bad. Uh, I fear we're getting more weird in, in both ways at the same time. And maybe you can't fine-tune the knobs to get only, you know, the very good version of weird. But it seems the Internet brings small groups together. It makes them more like each other. That's what's possibly driving this phenomenon. Uh, you would like to have more weirdness and also more trust. Uh, I hope we can navigate our way toward that combination. How do you think about the relationship between weirdness and trust? A lot of weird people don't trust mainstream institutions, and a lot of mainstream people don't trust weird institutions. So you end up with low levels of trust. You end up with vaccination rates nationally. I think right now they're below 70% in terms of, you know, two doses or more. And that's a major social problem, public health problem. Uh, I think people are somewhat justified in not very much trusting Congress. But once you're in that equilibrium, it's also hard to improve because Congress cannot get good things done. And I think in a variety of ways, we're moving toward a lower trust equilibrium in the United States. Uh, there's a decline of interest in organized religion, which I'm sure you're well aware of. And uh, that too, I think, has negative social consequences. When do you think we've been at the highest level of trust historically? Do, do you see trust as diminishing or it's, it's a perennial problem? I think in the 1980s and 1990s, trust was noticeably higher than it is today. I'm not sure how that compares, say, to the 1950s. 
uh, which might have been the peak or possibly a much earlier time. But at least locally, it really does seem we're moving toward less trust compared to the 80s and 90s. And possibly that starts with 9-11, which is a, a shock to people. And they're not sure how it ended up happening, but they start asking questions. How did our elites allow this sort of event to occur? Then you have the second Iraq war, you have the financial crisis, you have the pandemic, a number of really very bad events in a row, which provide easy fodder for not trusting elites. And maybe not trusting elites is substantively the correct conclusion, right? But again, you still get stuck in this bad equilibrium that it's hard to get out of. Has the decline in trust changed the way you think as an economist? Or how do you process the issue of low trust, which seems to be a cultural phenomenon through an, econo through an economist lens? Well, I think I now expect a higher variance of quality in policy responses. So there's so many things, again, to use the pandemic example, just because it's so transparent, like not being ready with testing, producing tests that didn't work, banning private sector tests, you know, even after two years, not quite having testing worked out when we should have had it worked out or could have had it worked out within two or three months. So that's an example of a, a complete train wreck. It was both the Trump and the Biden administrations that you could say are responsible. But look, we also had Operation Warp Speed, which was a kind of miracle. And it was enabled because we have higher powers of computation. We have scientists trading information rapidly using the internet. Other features of the modern world that, yes, make us weirder, uh, but help scientists be far more productive. So... Uh, Again, it's just easier to be surprised if you're expecting events to go as they did in the, the 1980s and 90s. You make an argument in Stubborn Attachments that we should make growth a top priority. If you knew for certain that more weird people in the good sense would lead to more growth, would you accept uh, the, the corollary of more weir bad weirdness as well, even if that meant, let's say, less trust or other kind of fraying of the social order uh, caused by the, the mismatch between the weird and the normal? If more weirdness means more growth, that's definitely the time when I want to opt for more weirdness on net, even if it involves collateral costs. Yes. What's your headline take on Fukuyama? Specifically, I feel like a, a main motif in his work is he criticizes economists. Now, I don't think he's criticizing you, but he's more of a, a straw man view of economics that it doesn't take into sufficient account the struggle for recognition that comes from thumos or pride or glory. And so the, the classical model of rational self-interest fails uh, to account for geopolitical conflicts that actually have very little to do with quality of life in the narrow sense. Well, I mostly agree with that criticism, and I myself once wrote a book on what you might call the economy of esteem and how approbational incentives, desires for respect, uh, influence economic and also political behavior. So uh, I think he's mostly right about that. I think it's harder to take those concepts and use them to come up with better or more concrete predictions. I would also say I'm fond of Fukuyama, the two-volume set on politics, I think especially his account of the evolution of Danish state capacity is the best thing I've ever read on that very important topic. So I like those books as well. Me as well. Is it fair to characterize his criticism of economics, though, as uh, a straw man? Or said differently, if we, if we accept that he's right, is what he's saying devastating for the economic field, or is it something that economics can accommodate using different language? What's the trade-off between Fukuyama's approach and, let's say, a typical economics department? I don't think it's a straw man, but I would wonder if the problem is not economics per se, but simply Western thought has had a hard time incorporating those motives and those incentives in a systematic way rather than a perfunctory way. So I'm not sure economists are worse than other people, but I do think the criticism of economists is justified. But I wouldn't say it's like devastating or not devastating. You know, I'm always thinking at the margin. My attitude is 
like who are the people doing work that that incorporate this in a meaningful concrete way that we can learn more from there is progress in that direction but it, but it really is very hard and that's maybe the, the the somewhat broader context i would want to put frank's remarks into so he's a very big picture thinker i mean he's in the very broad sense hegelian which is fine uh but i i would want him at some margins to really be be pointing out how we're going to make progress by incorporating those factors rather than just saying they're not there and they're very big and they're really important i think the hegelian contribution is as you said the state capacity insight um as opposed to let's say a lockean model which would see the state more as something to get around but not really the the big the big driver of society i think uh in in the hegelian story the state has a huge role to play culturally in mediating the relationship between citizens sure i would agree with that you know political science in particular the voting literature there are really quite a few good papers on respect and how say which leaders show respect for your demographic or interest groups how that influences how you vote uh that literature seems to me on a good track you could say well it's not economists doing it but i think economists could somewhat say in their defense look we think this is fine we've just agreed to a division of labor where someone else does it so to say it's not in economics is maybe a slight miswording of what we should be worried about one definition of economic thinking that i've heard you offer is the idea of trade-offs really as the fundamental insight and this is sort of a meta question but how often are you thinking in terms of trade-offs and when are you not and how do you think of the trade-off between putting on your trade-off hat and versus just kind of being more intuitive or instinctual uh, but not necessarily asking yourself you know where am i going to get a a better deal here at the margin Well in proper humean or smithian fashion most of my typical day is ruled by routine. I have a set of routines. I don't question them that much. Those routines involve a lot of work, a uh, high degree of very rapid information absorption, and uh really very little questioning about is, is this worth it? Is this the right kind of life to lead? You know, should I stop wor- working now and go for a walk? So I do exercise every day, but I try to exercise in efficient ways but once i'm into that routine uh, again routine rules but i think uh to have a minimum of distractions and really be able to focus on the things i i feel i do better than other things uh that for me is the proper trade off that makes a lot of sense have you changed your behavior because of something that you read or learned how has pursuing the life of the mind impacted the the everyday life of Tyler Cowen. Well, I think travel itself has made me want to travel more and I've kept on doing that. You know, reading things in public health has changed what I do or how I do it. But I I think in a funny way books are overrated. I I wouldn't quite say we're going to do what we're going to do and then we read books to justify that. but i think uh, a lot of our views come prior to books and books help us flesh them out in particular directions but maybe the book experience or the reading experience is not quite primary that there's genetic influence there's values you hold and it all gets channeled together i don't know but, but books books have a real influence but uh don't give them too much weight either recognize you're a captive of of broader forces as well including the region you come from if books are overrated why do you read so much i guess you read more than books but should you be reading less well i read more than books uh probably i should be reading fewer books and more on the internet and, and doing a bit more youtube uh i enjoy reading books more when a new book comes it's so hard for me not to crack it open and and read some of it sort of like a kid in a candy store Uh but I do feel I read too many books and I should a bit do more projects and spend more time with video. Yes. But that's just my my weakness and my over-reliance on routine. Like I know I'm good at reading books and it's worked for me. So the force is pulling me away from those books coming to the door. 
Uh, they're not actually that strong. They're not strong enough. What adult life experience has most changed your worldview? Depends what you mean by worldview. So, like one could say, getting married changes some parts of your worldview quite a bit. That's an entirely fair response. But if you mean intellectual worldview, just the coming along of the internet is a real thing over, say, the last 20 years has been by far the biggest influence. Learning to use the internet like a kind of computer that helps you approximate truth more rapidly and maybe more readily uh, is a much, much bigger influence than like any single book or set of books. This is kind of a strange question to be asking, but I'm curious, uh, since you're a chess player, if that experience has affected the way you think of sequencing your questions when interviewing. You said I'm a chess player. That, that's true, and it isn't. The, le you know, the last time I played seriously, I was 16 years old. But it was nonetheless a formative experience for me. And I think it helped sharpen my skills at looking ahead and combinatorial thinking. So if I'm in a conversation with someone, even someone who's smarter than I am or knows much more about the topic than I am, uh, I feel my ability to look ahead is probably not worse than theirs and may well uh, be better than theirs. And uh, that's a big advantage. I think uh, combinatorial thinking uh, is definitely one of my strengths. And that drew me to chess, but chess also enabled me to train it and strengthen it. Are you deliberate about the order in which you ask questions of your guests and conversations with Tyler, or is it just kind of following the flow of the conversation? How do you, do you, how much effort do you put into structuring a conversation in advance versus sort of allowing it to take shape? I'll typically come into the conversation with roughly seven pages of one and a half spaced notes. And maybe I use half of that. And I already have hypotheses about what topics the person might be most interesting on or what questions they're able to answer in the most interesting way. And I try to test them a bit early on. And then I process the results of that test. And I'm doing all this really very rapidly. And then I decide to go down some paths rather than others, abandon some of my pages of notes, play up other areas. And because I've done a lot of prep, I can do that really pretty easily and still have a lot to talk to them about. Uh, so you could you could call that deliberate, but there's really a lot mentally that goes into what happens and a lot of spontaneous on the fly remixing of the plan. And again, I feel I can do that very rapidly, like in, in milliseconds. Why is the question of underrated or overrated so important to you? Why is that a, a core feature of the conversation you want to have? Well, the last year or so, I've stopped doing it almost completely. Uh, Chuck Klosterman was an exception. But originally, I started overrated, underrated. as kind of a way of trolling the audience. So there are all these intellectual discussions. And so often, what at least some part of the audience actually really cares about is just who from this discussion ought to go up in status and who ought to go down in status. And I thought, well, if that's what they want, why not give it to them directly? Give it to them so directly, it's almost a kind of embarrassment of me, of the guest, of the process, and do it sort of both tongue-in-cheek, but also with a totally straight face. And like, let's just try to make this thing what to so many people it's really about. And I thought that was a, a, a neat way of learning something about conversation. It's become very popular. Like NPR has a thing where they've done it, and they like quote me, and other people do it, and people like demand it, ask for it. So I feel a bit you should never give the audience completely what they want. So like for a year to hardly do it at all and just see, I also think is better. You don't, you don't want to just become too much your routine, you know. I love that. So I hope this isn't taken as a trolling question, though it is a bit cheeky. <laughs> I love trolling questions. <laughs> is Tyler Cowan underrated or overrated? Well, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I would make this general remark. Uh, I know many people who know me. They typically overrate how smart I am and underrate how, how much I know or how many different things I know a lot about. That would be my answer. There's a weird way in which people who are of low status have more potential. 
and so in a in a weird way you might want to be low status in if if your goal is to have more delta how do you think about this sort of the paradox there that people who have achieved a certain level of status or fame can only really go down or can coast whereas those who are not yet appraised have the ability to kind of arrive on a on a new scene or do something new because they're underrated like is it better to be underrated or overrated i guess it's better to be overrated like maybe lebron james is overrated <laughs> you know i'd rather be that but the the lower status people can take more chances but i think i've also tried to structure my career to like stay in it the whole time so if you just take blogging i've been blogging now 18 full years uh, our readership is very robust. Sort of my presence in the public sphere, I think, is actually the highest it's been. And it's very hard to do that after 18 years. Uh, and it's been a, a goal of mine to kind of want to stay in the game. And I think I've been pretty successful at that. And that represents maybe a kind of intelligence I have that's quite underrated. And I think partly I do that. I'm not so intent on pushing any single particular idea. Like, oh, here's my idea about X, you have to agree, you know, with this claim about X. Clearly, I have many claims like that. Uh, but no, one of them is that essential. And maybe th there's something about method, but cycling a lot of different ideas or topics through the method. And that makes it possible to have more intellectual longevity than if, like, here's my best-selling book, it tells you that X is true, and look, maybe X is true, but after a while, X is boring. Uh, and I've always wanted to try to avoid that. And a lot of what I write, especially on Marginal Revolution, I'm as much editor or more editor than writer. So it's like I'm editing a daily magazine. Uh, and magazines can keep on going for some time. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, my favorite coffee not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Cometeer comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link cometeer.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. You identify as an infovore? If you were giving advice to a 10-year-old right now who sort of says, my goal in life is to, to live the life of an infovore, to be the next Tyler Cowen, what general advice would you give that person and what career advice would you give that person? I guess my advice would be, ask me again when you're 13. 10 is maybe too young to meaningfully digest advice. And at 10... A kid should just like do, like I did chess, right? Whatever the thing is, like just do that and don't worry about how pointless it is. And then come back and revisit it at age 13, 14, which is when you can really start to make progress, maybe 12 for some kids. Uh, but 10 is too young. Okay, so the 14-year-old says, I want to be an infovore when I grow up. Should I become an, an economics professor? What, what should I be doing to set my life up so that I can make a living just digesting information and saying something interesting about it? Well, I would give them my two, what I call generic pieces of advice. First is build out a small group of peers who have broadly similar concerns, uh, overlapping ideas, but not identical, and hang out with them or, or WhatsApp with them or whatever you can do you know, uh, Zoom calls with them basically every day. And then my other piece of generic advice is get some mentors. Start with one, but try to have more than one. And again, those are some of the rare pieces of advice that are nearly universally valid. Most of the rest is context specific. Is there anything specific you would offer the prospective infovore in contradistinction to the you know prospective basketball player? Well, the basketball player, there's a whole set of issues surrounding like drugs and sex. I, I, I'm not sure I'm the person to give advice on those, but it seems to me that advice would be especially important for the basketball player. 
you know, the 14-year-old Infovore, I would also say apply to Emergent Ventures, right? That would be some additional advice. Maybe this is, you know, me asking from a variety of different angles, kind of what you think about the academy today as a home for people who want to spend their life with ideas. What do you think the best alternatives are to the academy or are you bullish on academia as at least one option amongst others? I think academia has become much worse as a place to work and pursue a life of ideas. Uh, the degree of hyper-specialization continues to rise and shows no sign of really reversing. Uh, political correctness, lack of free speech, maybe in some ways those are exaggerated as problems, but still they're worse than they used to be for sure. And uh, other options, I, I don't think there are so many general categories of things you can do, but just weird ways of finding your niche seems to be far easier with the internet. Like one would be Substack. Now Substack is a small fraction of people who are doing this. Another would be, you know, some form of patronage. Another would be work part-time as a programmer, earn enough money, and then write things or do things related to the world of ideas. Another would be to kind of work as a private researcher and raise money for yourself. Those options are, are much more live now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. So again, I think academia in, in relative terms is looking worse. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, it's good that the alternatives are easier, but it is bad that academia is worse. So, you know, we rely on academia for many, many things. And to think these alternatives, better though they may be, can just pick up the slack I think that's really quite off as a view, and we're suffering from having an academic world that is ailing so badly. I mean, different anecdotes and stories you read about Yale, and it's not just one or two of them. There seem to be so many. It just, to me, seems intellectually and morally crippled in a fundamental way. Most of all, we do rely on academics for research and a lot of our ideas, and that's not going to change. That, that side of things is getting worse. Leo Strauss or Straussianism is some something that you're interested in and you often, you know, will use the phrase Straussian on your blog. There's something tongue in cheek about calling oneself a Straussian in the sense of, you know, not saying what you truly believe. Because if you were genuinely esoteric, you wouldn't say you're being esoteric. So how do you relate to this concept of Straussianism? Well, why is it important to you? Well, first, I should stress, I say what I truly believe, you know, way more than most people in the public arena, way more. Uh, but that said, I like to write pieces, blog posts that have multiple layers of meaning that can be read in complex and interesting ways just to not become boring and to, you know, stay in all of this for, for decades rather than just a few years. I once joked to Peter Thiel that I thought the Straussian message to Strauss is that there's not actually that much there. But it was a kind of exercise to think through things in a particular way. But when you try to grasp it in your hands, don't be shocked if a lot of the books are actually boring, uh, not, not always so great. And many of the elements of Strauss, I, I wouldn't call him anti-democratic, but there's there are people who respond to anti-democratic tendencies in the arguments or particular elitist tendencies, maybe stemming from the influence of antiquity. Uh, I don't like those parts of it at all. And his particular readings of people, I would say on, on most of them, I'm agnostic. But just having a general sense of the critical literatures on those people, I'm pretty sure Strauss was really quite far from having it figured out. So in a way, he's really like very under-impressive, or the works just are, are quite dated or haven't aged that well. But I also think that's fine. I think you can be a Straussian without reading Strauss. Maybe that's the best kind of Straussian to be. I'm going to get people mad at me now. <laughs> people are going to be upset. <laughs> they, can read, they can read your words in multiple ways. Um, speaking of Thiel and Strauss, I'm curious to know if you have an, a, a reader understanding of the end of his of, of Thiel's essay, The Straussian Moment, 
how do you kind of make sense in particular of the the triad of thinkers that he invokes uh, Schmidt and Gerard being the other two? What what do you think he's saying or really saying? I would have to reread the essay. Like Peter for me is the spoken Peter and the spoken Peter overwhelms the written Peter. So my impressions of the written Peter are quite faint. Uh, I do think Gerard is one of the greatest thinkers of his time and has lasting value. Uh, Schmidt is interesting, I think ultimately wrong, but the maybe the smartest proponent of a particular kind of anti-democratic view. And was, was Strauss the third thinker? Yeah. And, you know, Strauss, uh, I already gave you my take on. I mean, there's some way in which Strauss is so clearly correct in a way we hadn't understood. So 30 years ago, people would always say like, oh, why would you think these people were writing in codes or with multiple meanings? Like, that's silly. And then fast forward to 2022, like supposedly a kind of free speech society. And so many people are terrified to say what they really think. And it's just obvious that the Straussian premise is not silly. It's, it's much closer to self-evident. And in that way, you give Strauss like a, you know, a triple home run, a triple plus. And if that's what you mean by Straussian, and it is often what I mean, I mean, he, he, he's won so clearly and obviously, you just have to weigh elevate his status. Do you think the decline in free speech culture or people saying what they mean, just a general sense of censorship, self-censorship, do you attribute that to stagnation? Like, is your is is your thesis on that ultimately an economic one, or is there something more cultural or technological driving that shift? For instance, the internet, Twitter, you know, making it easier for people to to get taken down by a mob more quickly. I think we have technologies of cancellation, uh, as you mentioned, but I also suspect there are forces in history poorly understood but that make cancellations, and for that matter, religious awakenings, somewhat cyclical, that you go through periods, and then you overreact, and then there's a backlash. And right now, we've been, of course, in, in a period with a lot of wokeism. But, you know, the wokes, they're not that great in numbers. And if you look at it globally, they're not ascendant at all. Like, how strong are the wokes in Pakistan? You know, I've been to Pakistan. Israel would be a, a quite complex question, but you would hardly argue, you know, the wokes have won there. So uh, the wokes themselves are a, a counter-reaction to forces that had moved to excess. And I'm not sure where to start at all. How much do you agree with the, the thesis that wokeism is an American export and thus a kind of neo-imperialism? You know, under one view... Wokeism has its roots in English Puritanism of the 17th century. So in that regard, it's not American, but America is the closest continuer of that way of thinking. In that regard, it is American. But it's a, it's a small part of the American experience as well, because, as you know, British Puritanism, while a big deal, is only part of the American story. And most of America is not woke. And the way people will speak to each other privately reveals this. We're just now in this situation where you actually have one group of people who I believe when they talk to each other privately, so they'll condemn Trump, they'll condemn people who don't get vaccinated. There's a long list of things they'll complain about, but they don't actually speak to each other in non-woke ways, as far as I can tell. And I find that kind of extraordinary. It's interesting, above all else. We're so busy moralizing, like, for the woke, against the woke, the canceled, are they terrible? That just to step back in a, in a value-free manner and try to think about it as a social phenomenon, uh, I don't think we do that enough. If we were growing at a higher rate, would we be more or less woke as a society? Well, like Scott Sumner says, never reason from a price change. I would say never reason from a change in the rate of growth. So like what's causing the rate of growth to go up? Is it because we're exogenously taking more chances? Is it manna falling from heaven? Literally, uh, is it something else? It's going to depend. So I think a lot of wokeism is people simply having a broader moral compass and seeing that a lot of things we used to do are quite wrong and speaking out about it and mostly being correct. 
I know like someone on the right, such as myself, is not supposed to say that, but that's genuinely what I believe. So like the way women are still treated in major workplaces can be just terrible. And if the, the woke speak out against that, while I often feel how they do, it's counterproductive. I think often they're just right. What do you make of the, the trend towards stoicism in Silicon Valley or just kind of meditation more generally in a Western culture, mindfulness? Do you see that as a, as a positive thing, a neutral thing, or as a symptom of something that should be addressed rather than it's sort of a, a Band-Aid on, on, on something that we should be talking about? I suppose I view Stoicism in Silicon Valley as like solving for an optimal portfolio. So those people don't live Stoic lives. I don't want them to live Stoic lives. Adam Smith long ago pointed out no one can be the perfect cosmopolitan. The notion that you should truly and honestly internalize that your happiness really has not so much to do with the amount of money you earn. I don't want those people to start behaving that way. So they're very, in a lot of ways, the opposite of Stoicism. But to avoid a kind of internal psychological excess, you know, they need some kind of counterweight. And maybe the, the ideology of Stoicism is that, but it should be understood, dare I say, in, in somewhat Straussian fashion, and not as a thing they're actually proposing they believe. I've never met a true Stoic that I can think of. I think it's impossible, like Smith said. Maybe this is a follow-up question, but you want more people to strive, I, I, would, I would say, for moral reasons, meaning if, if more people strive, then the future will be better. Sure. But you're also happy with the common sense morality of people don't have to live, live lives of self-sacrifice and beat themselves up too much, um, worrying about you know, the poor somewhere far across the world, like when they're having a piece of chocolate is your example. So in religious terms, I think about those two paradigms as like six days a week, you should work and on the seventh day, you should rest. And I, I, I see your, your view as a, a kind of moderate position of wanting us to strive, but not wanting us to strive to the point of burnout or to the point of thinking that striving is all there is. How do you think about kind of the, the relationship between striving and the, the human need to sort of relax and enjoy life on its own, for its own sake without kind of worrying about the future? I would say, personally, I work seven days a week. One of the ways in which I would like people to strive is to develop broader notions of their self-interest so that it encompasses doing more to help the world. So there's a kind of consilience between sort of what is, I wouldn't quite use the word relaxing, but enjoying yourself and striving to the maximum extent. It seems to me very few people are on the frontier there where they've pushed that consilience as far as it can go. So if we could get more people to these frontiers of consilience, I think at the frontier, like most people would not be working seven days a week as I am. It might be five or six or, you know, for some people, say in Germany, it could be four. But it would be shocking to me if we were doing as well as we possibly could on that dimension. There's just no reason to believe we're at full efficiency there. I think efficiency gets a bad rap because it, it seems external, like somebody else is imposing that norm on you. Whereas your language of consilience almost makes it seem like we would be more efficient if we were doing the things that we loved and that we that didn't feel like work. Is that kind of an accurate way of putting it? Yes, I think consilience is a good way to approach a lot of problems. So when values clash, it's often hard to use ethics or morality to figure out which value ought to trump the other, or it's hard to be very certain about your answer. But there still might be a bunch of things you can do where you would advance on more or less all fronts. And uh, th those are the things you ought to do and focus on that. And if you can resolve these other clashes, I mean, fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't try. But at the end of the day, that's a kind of minimum you can do is find more consilience in your efforts. Is 
Consilience, another way of describing wealth plus, or what do you... It's the individual version of wealth plus, exactly. Just like economies, there's almost always something they could do to grow at a higher rate. Unless maybe you're talking about South Korea in its peak growth years. There's always something you can do. And the same is true for most individuals, at least if they have, you know, reasonable health. All things being equal, you would prefer an empty restaurant to a restaurant with a long line? Or would you add more nuance to that binary? I'm not sure you can make all other things equal in that comparison. But A, the empty restaurant is better for talking, which is very important. But also for ethnic restaurants, so many of the best places are often empty. And they make their money, say, by catering weddings or by having a lot of people come in at 1030 at night or any number of other ways that are fully compatible with you as the diner showing up at 5.30 p.m. for your dinner and finding the place to be empty. And that indeed is often my ideal, the empty restaurant. Would you extrapolate from the example of the empty restaurant to other areas of life? Um, like, it, Do you take that as a parable of some kind for hidden talent or hidden gems? How, how far would you extrapolate? And cross-subsidization. It's a very good way to look for hidden talent is to ask, you know, what's the cross subsidy here? So for the empty uh, Persian restaurant, you know, maybe the rent is being cross subsidized by catering for weddings. So it's actually very good. They're appealing to a largely Iranian clientele and it's empty. So you encounter people and you sort of wonder, well, if they're so good, like, why aren't they already taken? It's a very good question, but your answer might be there's something else cross-subsidizing their current existence. And if you can figure out what that is, they might be a wonderful talent nonetheless. Could you give a specific example to flesh that out of, a, of a, the kind of person who would be cross-subsidized and thus not as spotlighted as one would think? Well, there can be people who are extremely talented and they may not have jobs or full-time jobs uh, but they're just finding some clever way to get by while they're investing in their own skills. And they will, in a sense, look like the empty restaurant. But in a sense, they're doing, quote unquote, catering for weddings, maybe with a limited number of hours. And the question, well, if, if that person is so good, why aren't they already taken? It has a quite coherent answer. But, you know, sometimes that won't work. So let's say there's a person, they went to top schools, they like tried to work for mainstream management consulting firms. Maybe that didn't work out. They did that for seven years. Now they're kind of vaguely unemployed and they look great on paper in terms of degrees where they've been. But very often those people are not actually that useful. And when you ask the question, uh, like how did they get here? They just tried to do some very mainstream things weren't that ambitious, failed at those, maybe because of a personality defect. And just there you go. And no one has employed them because they don't actually add that much value. That would be an alternative scenario, which is actually relatively common. Would you identify yourself as an agnostic or an atheist, or does it depend on context? I think it depends on context. The word I've grown to prefer is I call myself a non-believer. So I don't believe in any particular account of what might be a god or a deity, but I'm also pretty skeptical about the particular accounts I read from physics, like the many worlds hypothesis or something about the Big Bang or string theory. Uh, I'm not saying they're impossible, but I would say I've spent a fair amount of time reading about them, and I really don't believe in any one of them. So I'm a non-believer, and that includes hypotheses about deity, but not only. So if you want to make that atheist or agnostic, I think you could put that either way. But the non-believer concept for me captures it. Are you a pragmatist? I don't know what that means. I love Quine and William James as amongst my favorite philosophers. But if I had to define pragmatism and then ask, like, do I agree with those propositions? It just sounds like a very non-pragmatic thing to do, right? <laughs> so... I'm not sure it's a meaningful question. Are you a pragmatist? You're kind of assuming the person isn't by the way you ask it. And any answer also assumes the person isn't. I think it's 
I would define a, a pragmatist as someone who waves away the question of beliefs instead of saying I do or don't believe saying it's not really so important whether I do or do believe I do or don't. Believe no, I think because... I think it's very important, but I don't believe. So I don't wave mm -hmm. it away. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it, reading about it, trying to figure out these different hypotheses in physics and in religion. Uh, but just the more time I put in, the more skeptical I become. But if you were a believer, would it, wh what do you think it would change in the way that you orient your priorities? Well, it would depend what I believed in, right? So, What about just the general category of being a believer? You, you, you choose, you choose the, the specifics, just the, the idea that there's some worldview out there, whether from religion or physics, that would compel you enough to, to feel, I guess, let's keep it broad and just say some kind of elegance or design or quote-unquote purpose to, to the world. All the oomph would come from the specific belief. So if I believed in, say, Judaism, I wouldn't eat pork. If I believed in many worlds hypothesis, there's even different versions of that. But I think I actually re would regard my own efforts as less meaningful than I do. And that might demoralize me slightly. So good thing I don't believe in that one. <laughs> so any particular place you put me, it's going to matter. But I'm not sure like the mere fact of having chosen a belief is going to matter that much. Because I think in terms of my actual life, it's quite organized by an, a series of concepts that are fairly religious, like project and mission and purpose. Maybe they're Protestant, American Protestant in some way. But in that sense, I, I already consider myself a lot more religious than many religious people I know. Yeah, that was sort of where this is coming from, is that I I take your project to be somewhat moralistic, um, not in the kind of scolding sense, but just that I think b believing in a concept of human rights, even as a guiding principle or believing that we have a responsibility to our descendants, it's curious to me where that comes from I, uh, beyond just intuition or may maybe intuition is enough. You know, I say this to my wife sometimes. She is Jewish and I am not. And I'll say to her, you know, I'm more religious than you are and I'm a non-believer and she doesn't like that. She doesn't agree with it. Maybe I'm wrong. But nonetheless, it's, it seems to me there's a lot of different levels on which you, which you can be religious or not religious. And how much you structure your life in terms of religion-like concepts is maybe an underrated one. And what exactly you think you believe in is maybe a somewhat overrated one. Mm. How important is it that a lot of Western concepts developed from Judeo-Christianity, broadly speaking? How, how much of the backstory matter to us now? It's incredibly important, and I'm a major proponent just of the positive historical view that so much of the Enlightenment came from Christianity, Judaism also, but I would say in that particular case, Christianity was more important, and that the religions held by people in given territories around the world will be a highly significant influence on how those places develop. Uh, so I've been a major proponent of those hypotheses for a long time. If somebody believes that individual liberty matters fundamentally, would you say that they're a Christian in the broad sense? Or do you think that one can get to that conclusion through a different pathway, a different uh, ideological evolution? Maybe that's too essentialist a question for me. I would say, uh, to, for the most part, Western ideas of individual liberty have come through Christianity, which in turn have come from Judaism earlier. Uh, but I wouldn't say the person is a Christian. Why is the intellectual future religious? It seems to me we've reached a, a low point for the influence of religion on a lot of highly educated Americans. And I think that will reverse itself. I think it already has reversed itself. So if you think, say as I do, that Rose Duthit is maybe the best columnist in all of North America, well, he's an explicitly religious writer. He's Catholic, right? If you think, as I suppose I do, that Peter Thiel right now is the most influential public intellectual, whether or not you agree with it, separate question, but just my goodness, how many media outlets will attack Peter and they will attack him for his ideas and how many people Peter has influenced in, in so many different areas. 
Silicon Valley, but not only, and that Peter is himself a religious thinker, uh, René Girard coming back as being someone uh, of import. It just seems to me that at the margin, while I don't think a majority of these thinkers will be religious, I think the, the marginal influence of those who are or were religious is just becoming much higher very rapidly, and, and that's what the future will look like, is that trend continuing. But secular thought at the moment feels somewhat exhausted. Is that because sociologically we're becoming less religious and so there's more room for weirdness I think that within religious thought? I think that's possible. We're also less used to religious ideas, so they're more novel or more useful or more surprising. People who explicitly do theology, I often find, find quite uninteresting. I know that's not an impressive statement coming from someone who doesn't believe, but I actually expected I would find them interesting. And most of the time I don't. So I think it's people who are not theologians who are theologically interesting, maybe is a way to put it. Just like popular public intellectuals, in a way, actually think more theologically than do the theologians, which to me seems more of a kind of a self-contained, almost academic game. Besides Douthat and Thiel, who, who impresses you, who's alive today, uh, that, you, that you think of as a religious thinker or a theological thinker in the positive sense? Well, if you look at the nation of Israel, it's not a single individual, but it is a nation based on religion in a way, while not quite unique, is fairly special. And how well it has done is a striking fact that I think is having reverberations around the world, but most of all in the Middle East. So that's something obviously I've noticed and to me is quite striking. Maybe one just this is sort of an obvious point, but but one reason why religion has uh, some positive value, whether or not it's true, is simply the optimism that it places on the human endeavor. Of course, Christianity has a pessimism vis-a-vis sin and the fallenness of man, but there's still this sense of obligation to the future that you get, especially out of Judaism, of uh, education transmission. And so that it inherently means that the world is something that you have to be a steward of. Maybe without religion, it's not as obvious why people should care about the 10, you know, 10 generations from now. I also find Islam very interesting. So the notion that if there were a God, that God would really be very distant from us and trying to think through consistently what that means. I think that's a quite valuable enterprise. And maybe if I believed in a supreme deity of some sort, I wouldn't be a Muslim in the sense of thinking, you know, Muhammad was God's messenger with the Quran. But there's a lot in Sufism in particular in Islam that to me makes a fair amount of sense. That the, I think it's good for society for people to see God and man as not so separate. So in that sense, Christianity might be better for your legal order. But just logically, uh, a lot of Islamic views are more compelling to me. And I would say in this regard, Judaism is closer to Islam, right? God has left history at some point in the Hebrew Bible, and at least temporarily, it is more like Islam for the purposes of today, though in a broader sense, you know, for, for eternity, it may not be, because there's still history to be finished in a way that's very different than how it would be finished for a Muslim. Hasn't the God of Protestantism also left history in a certain sense uh, not by absconding or leaving the historical plane, but rather by hiding in the conscience of the individual, which is a kind of escape through eminence rather than an escape through transcendence? Well, if I were that kind of Protestant, I wouldn't think it was an escape. I would think it would, it would be the most important way God could live through history, would be in your heart, in your conscience, in your visions. Uh, not my view, but... I don't think those Protestants should feel that God has left history. This has been a great conversation. I really loved your thoughtful answers. Thank you for your time. Very honored to do this with you and uh, look forward to seeing what you do next. And obviously, we will be keeping in touch. Wonderful. And I will think uh, much more about all the questions you have asked. I'm very excited by the consilience that you demonstrated. 
and I hope to walk uh, in my own way in, in, in a path of, of consilience. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.